I've had so many great guests over the 10 years and nearly 500 episodes of my Inner Circle podcast. I always enjoy revisiting them, as I hope you do as well. One of the best is from back in 2016 with hit mixer Josh Goodwin. Josh has mixed huge hits for Justin Bieber, Bad Bunny, and Dua Lipa, among many others, and he's won 12 Grammys for his work. He's also worked with Acoustica on the Magic Flow vocal plug-in. During the interview, we talked about starting out as a studio intern, the diplomatic aspects of dealing with superstars, recording on the road with Justin Bieber, his approach to mixing at the time of the interview, and much more. Here's Josh from 2016. I want to go back to the beginning with you. So how did you get into this crazy business? I kind of got into it by chance, in a way. When I got out of the Marines, I went, uh, I went back to Miami-Dade Community College and uh, my first humanities professor, you know, the first class I took was humanities. And he was a type of professor that would talk about a musician and then sit on the channel and play. So like you talk about Bach and then play Bach for like 15 minutes or 10 minutes or whatever. And so I was immediately inspired and, and, you know, I had a conversation after that class about possibilities, you know, in music, cause I was getting ready to go to school and do some executive protection in the States and overseas. So it kind of just, I was immediately swayed. So you went to full sale after that, right? Yeah. So once, once I had a conversation with him, he explained to me that, you know, there's goals and, you know, there's routes that you could take to get in the industry. And, you know, I had a GI bill, um, from the military. So he told me about full sale, you know, I immediately called full sale and got into the next program that they had next slot that they had. And then, you know, went right up there. I'm sure you've been to a bunch of schools since then and, and you know about Full Sail and that there's so many graduates and there's only a very few jobs. I'm always interested to hear what someone like you who's gone on to be pretty successful, how you managed to get your gig coming out of a school like that, your first gig. You know, getting getting a job is never easy. You know, the, the first, before I even got an audio job, you know, I, like I my first job really was working at a restaurant and, and I, w- I, I went there for an interview and the guy said, I'll be with you shortly. And so I sat at a table and he didn't come, he didn't come talk to me for literally an hour and a half. I just, I waited there and waited there. And finally, when he came, he asked me why I waited so long. I was like, I need a job. He's like, all right, well, you're hired. So, you know, that's the philosophy I take. Um, when I moved out to LA, I slept on couches for a whole year. You know, I paid $250 a month for rent. Is contributing to my buddy's my buddy's rent. I did PA PA gigs, moving stuff, hauling stuff for TV shows and commercials to make money. And I interned at Track Record Studios. And you know, I don't I don't remember exactly how I got the internship at Track Record, to be quite honest with you. But you know, it was an unpaid three month internship. I used to work at Track Record a lot back in the '90s, I guess, when it was owned by. Um... Oh, Nashville producer. I can't think of his name. Brian Hearn. And it was a great place. I loved it. Yeah, when I was there, Tom Murphy owned it. Did you know Tom? No, I don't. Oh, man, Tom was a great guy. He gave me legs, man. He gave me legs. He, you know, Tom was a type of type of engineer and type of studio owner that, you know, some studios, if you're an intern or you're not, or you're a runner, you can't touch a microphone. You can't step into a room. You can't do any of that kind of stuff. You know, Tom was the complete opposite. He, 
He was like, get in these rooms, learn how to set up the microphones, learn how to, how to properly set up a two microphone, you know, watch the assistants and, you know, do all that stuff. And, and Tom was also the kind of studio owner that, you know, said on your spare time, I want you bringing gigs in here. I want you learning these rooms and I want you building your craft. He, he was an, he was an, an enabler for me to, to really get my studio legs up at that point. Is that where you get your chops from? Yeah, I mean, I can get a little bit from there. You know, I, I learned about, I learned about stuff that you shouldn't be learning in major studios with major clients. Like, <laughs> you know, you can, you could make some mistakes and not get flamethrowed for it at that time. You know, you do that with the major clients now, like that's the last time you're working with them. Okay. So you're a track record and you're kind of learning your craft. Was this as an intern or were you paid? Well, I eventually became a runner uh-huh. and, you know, I made like, I don't know, I don't want to say it because it's an embarrassing low amount. <laughs> and then, you know, I, I ran and then I started assisting there and my assistant raise was a quarter, <laughs> and which is the very, I'm not going to even tell you the number two, cause it's still the same amount was just a quarter more. But, you know, during that time I started assisting and then on my start time, I would just be engineering, you know, other, you know, for friends or for clients and stuff like that. And so the, at the point where I was about to leave track record, I was half assisting, half engineering. And, um, at the time there was this engineer named Jan Fairchild who was working with most deaf at track record. And he's like, you know, he, Jan took a liking to me. I took a liking to Jan and he was getting ready to move the session over to record plant. And I was like, what's record plant? I keep hearing about record plant. <laughs> and so Jan's like, you should check it out. So. I mean, that, that's my next step. If I don't know if you, if you have any more questions about track record, but that was, that's, you know, record plan was the next step in my evolution as far as career wise. Yeah. Let's go there. Yeah. Well, shit. So, you know, track record was getting ready to be sold to the guys, the Fairmount guys. And, you know, Tom Murphy told me that, you know, they're getting ready to sell. He's like, you could stay or, you know, you could look for other options. And, you know, around the same, same period of time, Jen Fairchild was like, dude, you should check out record plant. So I got an interview at record plant and I interviewed with Rose who, you know, to me, who's the godmother of female studio managers slash studio bosses. You know, she's like, she's the one for me. Yep. So I had an interview with Rose and you know, the interview was cool. She asked me if my car was clean. <laughs> I said, yes, even though I, I knew it was dirty. And then she said, all right, well, let's walk to the car. And then she's like, I'm just kidding. Jen Fairchild. She said, Jen Fairchild, uh, vouch for you. So you're good to go in my books. So I started, uh, assisting at record plant. Great place to start. Jeez. Or to actually continue because the level of clientele, I'm sure was a lot higher. Oh yeah. It's definitely like, you know, you go from, from C level budgets to a level budgets overnight, you know, the raise, just the assistant pay was more. And, you know, the clientele that you come across is, is higher all, all the way around. It's major label stuff. So, you know, I was able to like, you know, a track record, I was able to, to learn, make mistakes, not do those mistakes again, keep it moving, you know, and learn basic, basic principles, you know, my principles, my techniques, signal flow, you know, the consoles and patch bathe and learn how to deal with clients. So it was a pretty good education before I went to a, uh, to record plant. What was your big takeaway from record plant? Uh, I have so many takeaways from record plant. I mean, I, I remember just walking through the, the, the halls of record plant for the first time and, 
you know, the names on the door, there's like Kanye West, Michael Jackson, you know, freaking J-Lo, like all these names. And I was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, so I was immediately blown away by like just, you know, the quick changeover of the studio. And I met a lot of, I met a lot of my future clients from Record Plant. I started engineering for GI, the Atlanta rapper and um, a songwriter named Esther Dean, who's a very, very fucking awesome songwriter. She's written a lot of big records. And so, you know, I picked up engineering quickly over there. They gave me an opportunity and I didn't think I swam. So they kept giving me more engineering opportunities. And I think about maybe six or seven months into record plan, I met Ku Carell, who's, you know, to me, he's one of the best vocal producers in the game as far as recording vocal production delivery like he his work ethic he taught me how to he he really taught me how to make records so my biggest takeaway from record plan was working with cook if you had one takeaway from him or one one secret what do you think it is i mean i know you mentioned work ethic but is there like a technique or something that's special to him no i mean he's been making songs and records for a long time pretty much almost his whole life and you know, he became successful later on in his life, like in his later 30s, early 40s. So, you know, Cook has always worked hard. He set the, the standard for me. You know, he showed me how hard sometimes you have to work to get the job done and get the job done right. Mm-hmm. You know, he called it digging in. You know, when you're digging in, it's nothing else matters. Like, the only thing that matters is getting the record done and getting it done right. So, you know, he... He literally brought my studio legs up to full potential. And, you know, I, I carry that same principle onto every single project that I do. Like some, some come easy, some you got to really work hard on. And you just got to understand that just because you got to work hard on it doesn't mean it's not good or not right. It's just some records take a little bit more than others. What do you consider your break? Yeah, I consider my whole career a nice little, a nice little break in stepping stones. You know, I still don't feel like I've, accomplish what I want to accomplish in this career yet. So I don't know if I've hit my break yet, but you know, through Kook, I, I met Justin uh, Bieber and I worked on a couple albums with, with Kook and Justin. Oh yeah. Another thing that, that Kook taught me was how to, how to do something from start to finish, how to start from song one, get to song 16 in the to mix, listen to the masters deal with A&Rs, deal with managers, deal with the politics of songs, deal with all that stuff. Like that's a whole different topic, but, um, back to this thing. Um, so I met Justin and, you know, one day Justin asked me to go on the road with him to record for an acoustic, uh, acoustic album. And Cook was on the road with Rihanna. So Cook couldn't do it. Um, I went on the road with Justin and, you know, one day turned into three months on the road and it was this, uh, this acoustic album. And I ended up engineering the whole thing and co-producing it i'd say that's a break <laughs> um yeah that was a pretty cool break so you know i i learned, i knew i knew how to get to get the songs done and you know i feel like i have a good ear and or i had a good i have a good ear for this kind of stuff and i know how to deal with people especially justin i've been working with justin for you know a couple of years already at the time and we already liked each other so there was no initial meeting period he knew, he knew what he wanted. He asked for me personally. He called me. So what are you going to say? No. Yeah. Right. Like I hit cook ups and I let him know and he said, go for it. 
What I find interesting, though, is Justin is on a whole other level. I mean, he's on a superstar level, which is different compared to everybody else. I mean, normal stars are, are, you know, they're a different breed, but now you're talking, you know, a level above that. So how is that different for you than what you're doing before? And and just in, in dealing with diplomatic aspects of things. You know, diplomatically, in my eyes, I work for Justin. Like, you know, he's got, I also work with Scooter Braun, but I'm not, you know, managed by Scooter and Scooter doesn't pay me. Justin pays me mm-hmm. or the label pays me. So, you know, initially my alliance has to lie with the artist and, you know, having a military background, you know, I have a lot of discipline in certain areas, certain areas I'm a freaking child, but certain areas I have a lot of discipline in. And I know how to deal with personalities and I know how to deal with people. And, you know, Justin is a, he's a superstar at the same time. He's like my little brother, mm-hmm. you know, I don't pick on him. I don't treat him like a piece of garbage or whatever, but I treat him with respect. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't think it's a hard thing for me to deal with. I don't, I never had a problem having, having issues with dealing with a superstar artist or my next door neighbor who's trying to put an album out, you know, it's the same thing. Except, you know, the superstars fly in private jets and we stay in nice hotels and, you know, I have studios booked and if I don't use them, I don't use them. It's not a thing. And, you know, it's just, there's just different things that, that come along with that and pressure. When you were on the road with Justin and you're recording the acoustic album, so how often were you working and what conditions were you working under? Was it kind of like he just decides to, to record and you set up in a hotel room or it was always in studios or how did that work? No, well, the thing about Justin is, you know, he's, he's 22 right now. And he grew up, he, he grew up in a period where he's, he's been a star since he's a, you know, young teenager. So, you know, if Justin's, if Justin's at a show and he wants to play hockey after the show, he's going to go play hockey after the show. It's like, if he thinks about it, it's going to happen. So for that situation, what I did was I had a portable rig set up. I had a, you know, four banger API rack. I had my CO1B, I had a Sony C800G for vocals and FM7 for vocals. And I had a couple different guitar mics. I think what I had, uh, 451 and something else and a retro 176 compressor. And I would literally set up in every backstage, backstage at every venue he had. So if he wanted to record, I'd be ready for him. If Dan Cantor, his guitar player, wanted to, to record his guitar parts before Justin came in, I would record his guitar parts. And sometimes we recorded backstage and sometimes we were recording a hotel room. I would also set up in the hotel rooms and sometimes we would record at the studio if the cities were large enough that had a sufficient studio to work at. Mm-hmm. It was done all over the place. You work mostly in studios though, right? You don't work mostly in the box. I'm pretty much in the box. Are you? Pretty much. Right now, like my mix, my mix setup is a little different. I've been, I use some, some, uh, some outboard gear on certain things, but you know, it's just it's like if I'm, let's say for this, this is acoustic album that we're talking about. You know, everything's, everything comes in, the front end has to be special. And once it's in the box, like it stays in the box for me for that particular project. But since then though, are you in the box all the time? I'm primarily in the box. I got a couple outboard units that I use. I use, uh, you know, Bracosby for verbs. I use converters and I just, I've been using an FGL summing mixer, um, the last year or so that I dig pretty well. Dolby 740 I use sometimes. Wait, wait, a Dolby 740. What, I mean, yeah. what is that? I, yeah. I'm not familiar with that. What is it? 
It's like a multi-band EQ, multi-band compressor slash EQ. It's got threshold, it's got crossovers, and it's got a noise reduction unit and a filtering unit. So it's like a, it's a pretty cool unit, actually. This uh, mix engineer Fabian put me onto it. And what does it do? What do you use it for? I guess it would be considered a textural processor. Mm-hmm. I mean, I use it for horns, synth horns. I use it for synth horns, background vocals, um, any kind of synth that needs to be a little more special. Pretty much any any element that needs a little, you know, a little special sauce on it, I use it on. In the old days of tape, when everybody was using Dolby, we used to do something called stretch. And that was using the Dolby A units on vocals. And, and you, you would encode it, but you wouldn't decode it back. So it would give it this interesting high-end kind of boost, kind of sheen. But it's something that you couldn't duplicate with EQ at all. And it was called stretch. And a lot of people used it, but you had to have a couple of Dolby units around in order to do it, Dolby A. But uh, that was way, way back when. Kind of the same thing you're talking about, though, I think. I think it is too. And you know, this, this unit, the 740 has a threshold on it. So, you know, you could, it's, it's super functional and I love things that have, you know, good threshold knobs on them. Cause I don't know. I just like having control over that kind of stuff. It's not just, this is it. Let's talk about your approach to mixing. So w- when you're going for a mix, first of all, is most of the stuff that you're doing electronically based? I mean, it seems like it. I would imagine that if it's electronically based, you'd have to approach it differently than if it was mostly musician based. Yeah, I approach it differently, but I kind of approach the same word. So let me try to start. Let me start somewhere where it makes sense. So usually the mixes that I did, like, you know, I started doing a lot of mixes for Justin and you know, when I, when Justin finishes recording, like I immediately immediately start rough mixing and you know, and in, in that first half an hour of, of the rough mix, I'm just trying to capture the emotion of the vocal, of the lyric, trying to clean up his tone as best as possible. If I couldn't get it right on the recording, you know, fix any issues I have and just create a solid rough mix that he could listen to, that anybody could listen to. And, you know, just listen to his, his reference mixes probably, a, you know, a hundred times, maybe more. He listens to his songs over and over and over again. He knows them front and back and, you know, he expects them to sound a certain way in his mind. Mm-hmm. So for example, if I'm doing electronic music and, you know, jumping the vocalist on there, by the time I get the, the actual music stems, my vocals are pretty much done. So like, you know, I just dig in on, on my, on my track and then marry the two together in a peaceful manner or a very aggressive manner, however, whatever it need be. If it's a uh, live instrumentation, I just did this album for uh, this Colombian artist named Juanes, who's super, super talented guy, super talented guy. And it was a mix between electronic and live track instrumentation. And like, I treat the two as the same. They, they layer the, the acoustic sounds with electronic sounds. So in my mind, it's electronic. It's just guy, they just wanted to sound. They just wanted to have that a little more natural sound to it, which they accomplished very well. So, you know, I treat the same. When you first start, do you have a template that you begin from? I'm talking about mixing now. Um, I have a template I use. Yeah. It's not like a, you know, basically I designed a template to where everything's routed the way I like it routed. All the plugins that I usually use are on inactive 
And, you know, I, I, let's say for example, on a drum, on a kick aux, I might have four plugins and I'll audition each one of them and see which one I like better on them. And I'll stick with that and so on and so forth. And I also have an, have one of my assistants just go on and, and route the, the drone, the kicks through the kick aux, snares through the snare aux, the drums through the drum aux and so on and so forth. So I'm not bogging myself down with, you know, 35 minutes, 40 minutes of, of busy work. Yeah, that could happen pretty easily. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like, dude, if I have, if I have 16 mixes to do, it's going to take me, you know, 30 to 45 minutes per mix, you know, times 16. It's like, that's, dude, I cannot be doing that. Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a, very, that's a very important job, but that's a very important job for someone that doesn't have to be mixing, you know? There's, there are definitely times where I'll prep my sessions my own if, I'm, if I don't have a, a heavy, heavy, heavy workload. So now get get familiar with the session, route it. I mean, you know, and, and, if, and if I do things like that, I'll, I usually change up the way my template is. So when I do things like that, it creatively enables me to to rework my templates and change things that I that I've wanted to change on my templates for a while too. So you know, I definitely do that too. What are your favorite plugins? I've been using a lot of UAD stuff. Fat Filter Pro Qs. You know, the Fat Filter they make some really great stuff. UAD stuff's been really good to me. What else do I use? Tons of shit. Oh my gosh. I don't know. My plugin list is so long. Just having a hard time thinking of it. Are there a few that you know that you're always going to use in every mix? Yeah, I'll use a Pro Q2 later on down on my vocal chain to, to correct things, to, to smooth out frequencies. I usually use an FFL channel on vocals. You know, I use a lot of LA2A, UAD, a lot of LA2As on vocals or 1176s on vocals. Mm, fat filter DSer on vocal. On bass, I use, sometimes I use a fat filter multiband compressor if I have to, you know, trigger some ch- side chaining. What else do I use on bass? You know, Nevi cues, FFL EQs, I have all that on there. Um, Dimension D, I like using the Dimension D on stuff. And what else do I use? I use sound toys, you know, sound toys, delays, their micro shifts. I use their alter boy for like pitch effects. If I want to pitch effects and reverb, uh, stems that I got, I'll, you know, I'll either use that or I'll use, um, you know, pro tools is, uh, what is it? You know, their polyphonic stuff or elastic audio. Yeah. Yeah. Drums, these stuff, fucking destruct. Not distressors. I do use distressors, but uh, decapitators, cold alters, and you know, I just use so much stuff. How much automation are you doing? Are you drawing it in? You doing it by hand? How does that work? Well, I I do a fairly good amount of automation, but I I usually do it once I got my initial blend in. So I'm kind of not chasing the dragon on that one. I like to uh, just just get the good mix in and then then create extra dynamics with automation. You know, when I when I first get the vocal, I turn I keep everything off on the channel, and I do basic clip gain automation on my vocal to where it sounds even for me. Mm-hmm. And then once like you know for for example, I'm just talking about the vocal right now. So you know sometimes when you record vocals, some vocals are loud, some vocals are quiet, some you know everything. There's so many different factors change the, the dynamics of a vocal. You know, I don't over compress when I do go, go into my vocal to start. So I manually clip gain my vocal to where it sounds even, you know, even is a half decibel to a decibel and a half of audible difference. 
I consider even. And, and so by the time I put, you know, an SSL channel on there, I do some corrective EQing or some additive EQing, whatever the case is, do light compression, you know, put LA2 on there. I don't, you know, my compressor is not catching too much of, too much of too much. It's pretty, it's, it's compressing pretty evenly at that point. So, you know, vocal automation, I'll do that. And then over, overall, you know, I'll, I'll draw in my own trim automation, my own, I draw in on my own automation. I don't use faders. Yeah. I prefer to do that too. It's faster for me. I mean, dude, I would love to work on the console, but I'm in so many different places. If, if my mix is not sounding the same everywhere I go and brought up very quickly, certain clients that I have are not going to be having it. That's not important to them. You know, they of course want to sound good, but efficiency is, is key in my business. No, that, that's a big change in the business, really. And I got to say, it's all for the better as far as I'm concerned. And this is coming from a guy that used to work on consoles all the time. I was never a big fan of console automation. I always thought it was clunky and, and really hard. And now it's so much easier. It's like, well, why would you even bother going backwards, you know, on that? The thing archaic to me, like, you know, I learned on a G and, you know, the G automation is just like go to, it's just like, it's just like, it didn't seem like it made sense to me. And when I could do it so quickly in Pro Tools too, and, you know, automated filter in Pro Tools is, is two clicks. You know, you enable it and then you select which parameter you want to automate, you automate it. And then maybe bypass it or, you know, whatever. There's, there's a couple more functions, but this dude, it's so fast. I could make a filter, you know, I, I can make a filter automation suite in, in, you know, 10 seconds. Well, okay, let's go there for a second. So how much do you do things like that? Because I mean, the old school way of doing it was the automation was primarily for faders and mutes and, and everything else was kind of sort of gravy, but that's not the way mixing works anymore. You're automating a lot more than that usually. So how much more do you do other than just faders and mutes? I do ton. I mean, I consider myself a creative mixer. If you give me a session, I'm not going to just blend it and, you know, make it loud. Like I'm going to go in and add shit that I feel like that, that is missing from the song. Like, you know, whatever, whatever it is, like, I'm not going to add in like, you know, sensor bases or guitars unless I know the producer and they've asked me to, but you know, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to create a song that I want to listen to. So not, not selfishly, but as a, as a listener, you know, mm -hmm. if the song is boring to me, I'm going to create moments in the song that are like, Oh, took me there. Thank you. Or, you know, like, you know, I'm, I'll create my own moments in the song just to make myself be able to listen to it too. And, you know, clients like that, producers like that, you know, I don't, I don't do it in, in an invasive way. I do it more for musical enjoyment. When you're mixing, is it mostly you or do you have the artist and the producer with you or does it happen sometimes? How does that work for you? It all varies, man. I prefer to have sort of get some good down and have the artist come in and the producer come in. You know, I like to have the producer come in first. If, if I'm not on a personal basis with the artist, like if it's Justin, Justin has final say in any mix he has. Like he could have the best guy in the world mix his record. If he doesn't like it, he'd be like, dude, no, you're mixing it. I'm like, all right, fine. So Justin has final say on his music. And you know, other projects, usually the producer has final say. Sometimes the artists don't really have a final say. Sometimes the artists go with whatever the A&Rs and the producers want. So I, I got to figure out who that person is and, and whoever that person is, I want them in the room. Once the mix is good to go in my eyes, you know, 
I could turn a vocal up 2 dB is still fine. I could turn a kick drum up 2 dB is still fine. I could, whatever, whatever needs to change, it's not going to fuck the mix up. It eventually has to get to the source. So I like bringing the source to me and, you know, let's knock this thing out right now. Let's, let's not play this back and forth game for a couple of days. Let's just get to it. You mentioned before about making mixes loud. How loud do you have to make your mix in order to keep everybody happy? I mean, it depends. If the rough mix is so loud that it's distorting, you know, I try to tell my clients, like, you've been listening to a very distorted loud mix, and if they say, I want that, then, you know, I, I give them that. I don't want to. But if they say, I don't care about that, and, you know, I'm, I'll, I try to mix it to where it's not audible, audibly, like, you know, over-compressed or distorted. And I think, you know, my, my hearing overly compressed is different from the old school hearing of overly compressed, you know, cause our music is so compressed nowadays, but I still don't like to hear artifacts unless my client wants it. Yeah, for sure. You know, way back when we're, we're used to lots of dynamic range because that's the only way you could do it. I mean, you couldn't squash it any more than you did, you know, way back when, and now you can squash it to an inch of its life if you want to, and, and it happens a lot, but that doesn't necessarily make it better or even louder for that matter. No, I agree. I mean, you know, when I listen to old records, I just turn the volume up and it still feels, sounds great. I'm not comparing it to, uh, to the volume at a low level to a new record that, that just came out yesterday, but the new song is going to be so freaking loud. Doesn't mean it's better at all. Like some of these old recordings are recorded so well and mixed so well that you can't turn them up enough. What are you using on your stereo bus? I use a combination of a couple different things. You know, sometimes I'll use a SSL box compressor, Neep 33609. Um, I usually put an EQ on it, like a, you know, any kind of stereo EQ. Uh, what else do I put on there? I'll have, I'll have a spectral processor on there, like a, you know, ozone or something on there. Um, to create some width if I need it. Sometimes I don't use it. I have an Oxford inflator that I use very subtly that I, I, I love the, I love what it does. And you know, for like the loudness, I use a pro L it destroys the, uh, destroys the, um, the L2 in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. What are you listening on? Primarily ATCs. Got a pair of ATC FMC 25A that I've been rocking for almost three years. I got a pair of Bose freestyles that, um, I got introduced to in Atlanta from EK over at Silent Sounds, who's a fucking awesome guy. Um, he put me on to these Bose speakers and I power them with a 4B. And, you know, there's Innocent in every room. So I'll, I'll, I'll reference on the Innocent for a little while, but it's not an enjoyable thing for me to listen to music on Innocent for more than 15 minutes if I don't have to. That's just me personally, though. No, I, I've always felt the same way. I've always hated the sound of them. That's just kind of, we're forced to listen to them for a while, but not anymore, thankfully. Uh, uh, well, one, one thing about this, one thing about the speakers is when I came to record plan, that was the first time I really saw engineers bring in their, all their own equipment to, to make themselves comfortable and to, to work with, within their, you know, within their, their range before it was just whatever studio you go to is like, this is what it is. You know, there it's never, it is what it is. Like you create your own reality in the way you want to work. If there's a certain thing that you like and you feel like you need to work, freaking bring it. Use it. There's no excuse. That's just what I'm going to do on that. All right, Josh, last question for you. 
Was there a piece of advice that somebody gave to you somewhere along the way that really made a difference in terms of music or the music business or anything like that? Or was there something that you learned along the way that was kind of like an aha moment? That's kind of a hard question because I feel like I'm learning them still. It's like, without sounding cliche, I mean, it's all possible. Like anything you want to do is possible. I've learned this, like, you know, our, our industry, it could be speeding down, you know, the, the fastest roller coaster and then going through a slow, slow, uh, lazy river. It's like, while the roller coaster is going down, you got, you got to go with it. And then, you know, when the lazy river is going, you, that's, that's time to recruit, uh, recoup, that's time to relearn your skills, to refine things, to catch back on, catch back up on life that you've missed because you've worked six months straight. It's the hard thing for me is, is creating, uh, a dynamic between my work life and my home life, which is challenging because I love what I do so much. And I could spend every day working on music if I had the opportunity to, but at the same time, there's, there's more, there's more to life than just that. So, you know, I try to keep a, keep an even balance and, you know, the aha moments, there's aha moments throughout your whole entire career. I mean, I'll probably be laying on my deathbed and be like, oh, fuck. That's what that was. Yeah, yeah. You know? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a student. I'll be a student until I'm dead. And I'll be trying to better myself and learn my craft, and, you know, till I'm, till I'm dying. Well, that's a good way to think. And I got to say, all the people that I know in the business that are successful are, are like that, have that philosophy where the, there's always something new to learn. And they're always trying new things no matter how well the old things are working and they're always asking questions you know how do you do that how do, how does that work and you know what it it keeps you fresh and it keeps you plugged in when you do that so good for you for learning that when you have oh hey bobby one one thing that i've been doing lately too um that, that i just thought about yeah is you know i've been talking to a lot of masters in different fields not just music and I think there's something to be learned from, from everybody in every single different profession, you know, like, uh, let me try to use an example. You know, I, I was, I was, I'm in the Marine, I was in the Marines. So like, I like knives and guns and shit like that. I mean, I know I probably shouldn't say that on a blog, but it is what it is. Like if, if in the, in the hands of the right person, it's not an issue for me at yeah. all. Yeah. So I have a lot of professional friends that make knives, custom knives. And these guys are, these guys are pros. Like they measure everything up to the teeth. Everything is, you know, the attention to detail is superb, you know? So when I'm talking to these guys and I hear them talking about their craft, their passion and what goes into their, you know, their daily lives and, you know, creating these, these tools or these toys or whatever you want to call them, you know, that gave inspiration from that. Yeah. Like if I'm, if I'm, if I'm lost for inspiration and I need inspiration, I'll, I'll talk to one of my friends that are crushing in some other completely different job. Then all of a sudden, boom, I'm inspired. I'm like, all right, let's get back to work. Yeah, I need yeah. to recreate my template. I need to, you know, redo this, redo that. So, well, I don't know. I'm with you there, but let me ask you a question. How do you deal with the fact that sometimes you're under a deadline and there's only so much perfection that you can grasp? Hey, deadlines are my favorite, my favorite things to work under because I know I have to turn it in. If I don't have a deadline, I'll dance around. I'll go back and forth, back and forth, turn us up, turn us down, turn us up, turn us down. At the end of the day, as long as it feels good, man, it, it's got to be turned in and you just turn that in. It's like, if you have regrets, fix on the next project. That used to kill me too. Like back, you know, in my mind, you know, the mix is never right. It's never done. And, and so like, 
it took a while to to just be okay with it. Just you know, it is it is what it is. Like there's only so much you could really do. And, you know, if if I'm making you know Steely Dan's age, like I had a year to do it, that'd be fucking incredible. But not so much the case. Usually it's like hey, two weeks go. Yeah. <laughs> and if I can't do all the mixes, I'm outsourcing mixes to, you know, the pros, to Manny's, you know, to Phil and all, you know, the people I've been, I, I've looked up to my whole career. And it's a pleasure to be able to, to hit those guys up and see if they can mix records that I've worked on. Because I get to hear their freaking mixes, you know, it's like, I get to hear what the song turns into. And that's also a learning thing for me, too. Thanks for listening and being my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that my new Musician's AI Handbook is now available. It's packed with information about how AI can help you with new song, lyric, mixing, and mastering ideas, as well as music marketing to help get your music out to an audience that you deserve. To get your copy, go to rebrand.ly forward slash AI Handbook. That's rebrand.ly forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.